0: Uh, month so today we're going to deal with the incarnation and then next Sunday with angels then with the idea of the promises of the Old Testament that concern primarily the coming of Christ and their fulfillment in Christ's incarnation in life and then lastly uh, on the 21st we'll deal with the the theology of the two natures of Jesus Christ, that he is both God and man. So I wanted to deal with things related to Christmas as I came back in for a month, but I just didn't want to do this in the sense of going through the stories. You'll probably experience that in your own home church on Sunday and various other avenues, and I thought we'd just deal with some of the theology that has to do with Christ coming into the world. So if you want to turn to John's Gospel, Chapter 1, that's where we'll begin today. This primarily deals with, is the. by the way, these uh, is this the first time we've used the new Bibles since we've gotten them? We did it one, two weeks back? Last, okay. Well, then you have these uh, new editions of the Bible here. And you see how that it very appropriately has as a title, The Word Became Flesh. That's the incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. As I was reading that, in that passage, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. It was in December when I was the pastor of the little church in Florida, Alabama, and I was preaching on that text during December. Just as I got up into the pulpit and began to read the scripture, I looked, and the local man who owned the garment factory whose name was Seymour Gittenstein. He came and sat down at the back of the church, and I thought to myself, oh my, I am going to be in a real pickle now. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. <laughs> but that good and gracious man who everybody in the community just enjoyed immensely, he, um, there was no Jewish synagogue around, and he, he really, he had his children raised in our Presbyterian church long before I came, and he was a widow. And he just came and would sit through these sermons and was very appreciative, very loving man. And uh, but I, as I thought of that as I was reading it, just how that man uh, did so much good in our community. Now, we're looking here at the incarnation of Christ today. When we talk about this, we are considering the birth of Jesus. Now, this is the important thing when we think about the incarnation. We're dealing with the birth of Jesus as it is the perspective of the divine side, that Christ, the eternal Son of God, is becoming a man. So this particular dealing of text is not dealing very much with the name and the person of Jesus. It's how Christ, the eternal son of God, became man. And the Bible seeks to explain that, especially John's gospel seeks to explain the reality that God's son came from heaven, that he remained God's son after he came from heaven, but that all of his glory was veiled. And it was veiled because he was seen as being a fully human person. And so this veiling continued right up until the time of his resurrection. Now, how many of you all are Baptist in background? Give me an idea? Okay. Baptist in background. Well, you know... We're more cousins oftentimes than we give credit. Uh, When we think back to the foundation of the theology of the church that was in England, there was an effort in the 1600s to unify the theology of all the British Commonwealth, and it was through what was called the Westminster uh, Assembly. And so they brought all of these people together. There were Baptists there. There were uh, Independents there. There were people from the Church of England. There were people that we would call Presbyterians. They all came together. They met for five years. They developed a confession of faith, a catechism, larger and shorter. And they uh, finished with their work, gave it to the Parliament. And the Parliament says, that's very nice, but take it all back and write down the biblical proof text for it. And so these men had to go back and proof text this. Well, they dealt with this aspect of the incarnation. Now, this confession is still the confession of the Southern Baptist Church. It is their their really most basic theological uh, foundations, even today. And in verses twenty one or ch- questions twenty one through twenty eight are given the standard theological answers to the questions concerning the Incarnation that really have, again, from the Church of England, the Independents, the Baptists, and the Presbyterians all held to this perspective of the Incarnation. And so the question 21 asks this, What is who is the Redeemer of God's chosen ones? Well, the answer comes back, The only redeemer of God's chosen is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now catch this. The eternal son of God who became man, he was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And then the question becomes in verse 27 about Christ's humiliation. How was Christ humiliated? Christ was humiliated by being born as a man and born into a poor family, being made subject to the law and suffering the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, and by being buried and remaining under the power of death for a time. Then it asks the question How was Christ exalted? Christ is exalted by his rising from the dead on the third day, going up into heaven, his sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and his coming to judge the world on the last day. Now, all of these phrases are basically phrases that are taken directly out of the New Testament documents and kind of put together as pearls all on one string so that we can get a sense of, of the nature of Christ's incarnation. Now, I, I just put this together. It's just a definition. In the incarnation, Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a human soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and in one person. Now, here's another word that we don't often consider, forever. That's the way Christ is today. Now, when we begin to break this down and we begin to think about what does it mean at Christmas when we celebrate the incarnation, Christ coming into the world? Well, we begin to talk about the states of Christ humiliation as our mediator now as we think about what we know from the scripture we know that there is the pre-existence of Christ in heaven from all eternity as the second person of the Trinity as God the agent of creation and the one who is the Word of God the one through whom all the scriptures were mediated, and that he has become flesh to be the word incarnate. So we talk about this pre-existence of Christ in this capacity. Now, the incarnation begins to be considered when we think that this one who comes from heaven comes from heaven to be the mediator of our salvation, and so we talk about the states of the incarnation is being first of all the humiliation of Christ, and then secondly the exaltation of Christ. Uh, when we talk about these things, we we begin we begin to talk about. I'm going to go to Christ's exaltation first. Uh, Think of what we do if we use the Apostles' Creed and we get to the point in time and we say that he was dead and buried. You remember? He was raised from the dead on the third day. Now, this is a part of the uh, incarnation in which Christ is being exalted. So he was raised from the dead on the third day. He ascended into heaven. He sitteth on the right hand of God, and He is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. Now, those are the aspects that we talk about of the conditions of Christ's exaltation. But when we talk about the conditions of Christ's humiliation, that we're thinking today, again we go to the Apostles' Creed because there's really classically five aspects of this. Now. What I'm trying to give you an idea is when you say the Apostles' Creed, you're also seeing the Creed precedes the Westminster Confession of Faith. And in the Westminster Confession's theology, it does not go beyond what the Apostles initially taught in that Creed. So when we talk about the humiliation of Christ, we think okay, he was born. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried, and then the next thing is he descended into either Hades or into hell. There are five parts of the humiliation of Christ in his incarnation. He was born, he suffered. He died, he was buried, he descended into uh, or was held in death for these three days. Now, those things, you see, well, the confession of faith and its catechism is matching precisely the theology of the apostolic era. Now, again, when we talk about this, the incarnation we're also talking very directly about the birth of Christ. Now, there's about six things we're going to try and cover here. Uh, One is who is the subject of the incarnation? What is the necessity of the incarnation? What kind of changes were affected in the person of Christ as a result of the incarnation? That the incarnation, now this is the important thing that I think that we kind of focus on, that the incarnation constitutes Christ as a part of the human race—that's where all of this is going, and that that this was the incarnation was affected by what we call the supernatural conception and the virgin birth, and that the incarnation is itself a part then of the humiliation of Christ. Well, as we look at this, we think, well, what what does it mean to talk about the Incarnation? Well, it means, first of all, we have to talk about the subject of the Incarnation, who is the second person of the Trinity. Sometimes we would say He is Christ. Sometimes we would say we're talking about God's only begotten Son, And, and that's the way we should think about this. Now. Sometimes we get so focused on the person of Christ in the Incarnation that we forget that all three parts of the Trinity are actively involved in the Incarnation. It's not uncommon for a pastor to be talking to somebody that's a member of a church and to have them have the idea that the whole of the Old Testament is about a God of wrath and that the New Testament is about a God of grace and that somehow Christ came into the world in order to do something about the wrath of God that is different from his Father and so that you have people playing off the Father against the Son and the Son against the Father. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. When we think about the incarnation, we have to think about it from the perspective that God, what did he do with his son in the incarnation? What's the word that we're going to use? What do you think? How about John 3.16? For God so loved the world, he gave. What's another word for gave? Sent. So you see the activity of the Father in the Incarnation. It's been the Father's plan that the Son would come into the world from before the foundation of the world. This is a part of his eternal plan. So all through the Old Testament, things are becoming readied, and these things that are becoming readied are getting ripened over time until the fullness of time. And then in Galatians 4.4 it says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. But the idea here is that God the Father is active in the incarnation. Well, God the Son is not merely passive. Now, uh, we just talked about Hudson Taylor being born. How active was Hudson Taylor in being born? Not very? No, he might have been kicking around inside there and all that good stuff, but... The mother bore the child. And sometimes when we think about the incarnation, we think of the passivity of things in relationship to the Son. And again, nothing could be farther from the truth. Jesus said, "...the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." So when we look at the incarnation, this was a part of the will and the plan of the son. In the gospel of John repeatedly, Jesus is making statements like this. I came from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of my father who sent me. And over and over again in John's gospel, Jesus speaks of his activity and coming into the world. Now, again, when we think of the Holy Spirit, uh, we think of those verses that we're so familiar with from the Christmas story, either in Matthew 1 or in Luke 1, that the Holy Spirit was the agent who caused the conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and the power of the Most High will come upon you, Therefore, that which will be born of you will be called holy, the Son of God. And so the Holy Spirit is involved in the incarnation. But the subject of the incarnation is uniquely the second person of the Trinity, God's Son, Christ, who is coming into the world. Again, just again to get a picture of this, we think of something like the baptism of Jesus Jesus is coming up out of the water after praying. The second person of the Trinity now veiled in all of his glory within the human nature of the person Jesus. He comes up out of the water praying. The heavens are open. A voice comes down from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And a dove-like figure comes down and rests upon him. So you have all three persons of the Trinity involved here. In the baptism of Jesus. Well, what is the necessity? Why is this necessary? Every once in a while, I'll either deal with one of two kind of hard case people that need to be converted. One is the kind of a person who's generally ignorant of the things that are necessary for his salvation. And then the other person is a person who is genuinely stubborn that they're not that bad. It's not uncommon to come across people who just really think that what they're doing isn't all that bad and God ought to just kind of wink and blink at it and kind of take it in stride. But when you tell them so clearly from the scripture that they were so bad and their condition was so desperate that the only way that they could be saved was that God had to send his own son to become a man, and that that man had to suffer all the things that he suffered and to be crucified and buried to pay for our sins. He had to do all of this while being sinless in order that the record of his sinlessness could be given to us, and through his death the penalty of our sin removed from us, and all of a sudden they begin to think that maybe they're worse than they thought they were. But this is the necessity of the incarnation. God did not send the Son into the world so that we in some way, shape, or form could see the true nobility and glory of being a man as opposed to being a horse. By the way, so you'll know, Katie, I think it was uh, uh, G.K. Chesterton who said that there's nothing more noble than a person upon a glorious horse. So you just might want to think, read, get that part of G.K. Chesterton and maybe somehow get it on your trailer or something. But it's not that we needed to be made noble that God sent his son. It's because we were sinners that God sent his son into the world. That's the necessity. Now, again, we limit things because we are what we call man-centered. Who do we think about? Who are our three favorite subjects? Me, myself, and I. Favorite subject matter. All right? Now, by the way, you know what we're all tuned into? What radio station? WIIFN. What's in it for me? (laughs) FM. (laughs) We're all tuned to that radio station, are we not? It's Christmas, we're open the catalog, what's in it for me? All right, they know that about us. Now, when we look at the scripture on a broader scale, we see that the incarnation because of sin was that the Lord would be the Lord of the universe and that he would take away the curse that God imposed upon the world. And so he is reconciling all things to himself Whether things in heaven or on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created by him, through him, and for him. And he is the one who is reconciling all things to himself through the blood of his cross. That's what Ephesians and Colossians tells us. So it's not merely that it's our pietistic self that's being redeemed here. It's God has sent his son to be the savior of the world. So these are the things that we need to consider here. We talk about the change affected by the incarnation. Again, there's a great deal of confusion about this. What happens in the incarnation, as we've read from these uh, questions in the catechism is that the eternal son of God is taking to himself a human body and a reasonable soul in being made man. The word of God becomes flesh. Now he becomes one person with the human nature of the person of Jesus. So you have two natures, one person. Uh, I was in Alabama. I was a pastor there. I went to a presbytery meeting. Presbytery meeting was there to transfer my membership in the presbytery in Alabama to this one in Georgia. Well, one of the pastors that was in charge of that part of the meeting found out that I was leaving and So he was talking to some of the people on the way to Presbytery, and they were uh, talking that I was leaving Floralla, Alabama to go to Milledgeville, Georgia. Well, the man that was in charge of that part of the meeting was not from Georgia, had no idea about Georgia. And so one of the old men said, Yeah, that's where the largest state or largest insane asylum in the world is located. (laughs) Now, I got up there, and they, this guy's in charge of the meeting, and this friend of mine, Bill, is saying, you know, in God's mysterious and marvelous and wonderful providence, he has finally found the exact perfect place for our brother John Kinsler to minister. <laughs> and so when he sprung that it was Milledgeville, Georgia, about everybody in the group was over 50, except for a few of the younger ministers. All of them laughed when he heard Milledgeville. They all knew what Milledgeville meant. And, of course, me, not to have a blank in my gun, I got up and said to my friend, to the moderator, could I say something? He said, you may. And I said to Bill, do you remember the words of our Lord Jesus? And he said, which words are those? I said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I I am. You may be also. Uh, Now, my friend said, I knew I shouldn't have done that. And I'm just warning you, don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. (laughs) Many of you you said, you know, the shooting down of the the bloody Red Baron, you know, many men have tried and many men have died. So just letting you know, don't do it. Now, if you came here and you had two personalities... If you had two personalities and you began to exhibit those two personalities for any length of time, where in the state might we have sent you a few years back? The Milledgeville. Milledgeville. That's right. We're not talking about two personalities. We're talking about the nature of God and the nature of man being in one person. And these natures are not confused. They're never confused. So what we're saying is, The human nature of Jesus never becomes divine. And the divine nature of Jesus never becomes humanized. The divine nature of Jesus remains constant in the person and the human nature of Jesus remains constant in the person and you see this all through the narrative. It's always one person acting. Now we could, um, if we have time, I'll make some references to what that means for us. But Jesus lays aside his glory. This is what we're told in Philippians chapter 2. That he did not hold the things or grasp onto those things that were of the divinity of its glory. But that he laid these aside... And took on the form of a man, and being made in the likeness of man, he humbled himself to the obedience in obedience to death on the cross. What does it mean then? It means that the eternal Son of God and the nature of the human person, Jesus, together in one person affecting because of the divine nature those things that could never be affected by a human in affecting through a human those things that had to be uniquely affected by a human in order to be our redeemer. Now, if this all sounds rather over your head and very mysterious, it is very mysterious. But when we look at Christmas, we have to look at it with a great deal more seriousness if we're going to affect change in the culture in which we live. It can't be merely a story. It has to be a story filled with the divine reason that has been revealed to us in the scripture. Now, once this is affected, it remains that way today. I preached a sermon a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning that dealt with primarily the issue that right now this person is seated at God's right hand. And he is the one who is the ruler over all, the Almighty, in total fulfillment of all those things that were promised to Adam in the garden. All of that has been fulfilled and realized in Christ, and it's proof of that is as Jesus Christ is seated at God's right hand. That's where this all goes. Christ is constituted, one, with the human race. How was man made? What does it say in Genesis? In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he created them. And so now the God, the Son, is made in the image, or as it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. The idea of the incarnation that Christ came to be man to deal with man's sin. So he's made constituted one with the human race. Now again today there's some aberrant theology out there. It's been around for a long time. But a great deal of this theology would be this, that Christ came from heaven with a human nature and that the miracle was that in the conception of Mary, There was the eternal nature of the Son of God and the human nature that he brought from heaven, and that's what was born of Mary. If that was the case, he could not be your redeemer and he could not be my redeemer. He had to be made like you. He had to be made like me in order that he could take upon himself all the responsibilities of obedience to the law and all the penalty of our sin in his death on the cross. But this is what is being taught in places today. Christ's supernatural conception and the virgin birth, we see this in Luke 1.35, what does Mary say? How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answers that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a child and because of the Holy Spirit's activity in this conception, the child that will be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so that there would be no sin, the Holy Spirit came and sanctified that conception. Again, there's a great deal of error today and that people think in their theology that sin is passed on through the male in the reproductive process. And that's not what the scriptures are ta- telling us. Mary was a sinner. The Catholic Church has taken this and doesn't like this, and so they have institutionalized the immaculate conception and the perpetual virginity of Mary in saying that she had never sinned any time in her life. And all of this is just not, if she wouldn't, if if one person could be born like that and live like that, then God would expect how many of us should be born like that and live like that, all of us. And so that's not the case. The last thing is the incarnation is a part of his humiliation. I've met some people in my life. And one of them that I met was a federal or a state judge in um, Montgomery, Alabama. His name was John. I just wish John was in this church because John is a dinger, and he would have dinged some of the lawyers in this church that need dinging, like that one. (laughs) That would have been a joy. (laughs) But John was married. To this cute is a bug lady, but you can't believe that a, that a big state judge's wife would be named this. Her name was Gypsy. <laughs> John and Gypsy. How do you like that? And her dad was a traveling salesman. They were traveling all over Alabama. And so when it came time for her to get to deliver, this salesman put his wife in his car, and wherever he went, she went. <laughs> and when the time came, that's where the baby was born. They thought, what kind of a name should we give this girl? And they gave her the name Gypsy. Gypsy. How you like that? Jesus was a basically like that. Wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. That's humiliation. Poor. Merely a boy. Grew in wisdom and stature and favor with man, just like we have to grow in wisdom and stature. He was a man of sorrows. He was despised. He was rejected, acquainted with grief. What are you going through? You aren't going anything through anything that you can't absolutely identify with. And as a result of this, he can come to your aid and he can come to my aid in whatever trouble we find ourselves. And that's a part of his humiliation, to totally identify with you no matter how broken you might feel your life has become or how broken you find people around you and how broken they think their lives have become. Christ can redeem that. That's why he was incarnate. Let's pray. Father, as we move through this during this month, may you speak to us through your word. May we see Christ in a glorious way. May we love him more and more because of the immensity of his person, the immensity of his coming into this world and coming into our lives. Now, we thank you, Father, for this glorious truth. And we've looked for the promises to be filled that have been made to us in Christ Jesus. Amen.